Welcome back to the Autoblog Podcast. I'm Greg Migliori. We have a great show for you today. We're going to talk about the Ford Maverick, which road test editor Zach Palmer has been driving. Uh, we'll bring him on in just a minute. I've been behind the wheel of the Chrysler Pacifica Hybrid, the Pinnacle Edition. That means you get leather pillows, among other things. It's a very comfortable minivan. We'll run through some news. We've got a lot of stuff to break down this week. I am very confused as to what year this is. We're going to talk about the DeLorean, the Buick Wildcat, and the Buick Electra. Is this 1986? Is this 1976? I don't know. Top Gun is number one at the box office. It's really hard to say. But hey, we have a great news section for you. We're going to re also talk about the Mercedes AMG one and rethink Volkswagen's plans for the Scout. A little bit of blowback this week from some of the dealers. So we'll get into that. Uh, we also have an interview with Eddie Alterman. You know him as the editor-in-chief of Car and Driver for over a decade. We're going to catch up with what he's up to these days. It's a podcast called Car Show. So uh, that'll be coming up uh, later on in the show. Right now, I'm going to go ahead and bring in Zach Palmer, road test editor. How are you, man? Oh, I'm good. I'm uh, just recovering from falling off of a jet ski over the Memorial Day weekend, right around 60, 65 miles an hour. Hopefully, you guys didn't do the same because I can tell you, it definitely doesn't feel good. But beyond that, I'm doing great. <laughs> that sounds great. That is one way to kick off summer is a full body injury at 65 miles an hour. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, water, not the best way. No, no. I mean, it's 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 definitely not the best way. It was my first time on a jet ski. So, you know, okay. go hard or go home, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's... I would say any future experiences on a jet ski will have to go better than that, right? I mean, yes. how can they not? I mean... Yes, absolutely. Uh, and maybe I'll be on one with less than 300 horsepower that has a supercharged four-cylinder engine. These things are nuts. <laughs> that sounds like some special edition Porsche or something. So, oh my god, <laughs> I I'm impressed. I'm impressed. Cool. Well, I feel actually pretty good right now. So we might as well get into the show. I feel fully healthy. Knock on wood. And got a great news section. So we'll start off with that. The DeLorean is back. Um, pictures are pretty wild. We saw a lot of. Uh, we we got some of the information this week. Uh, we expect to hear more about this later on in the summer. Uh, our subhead, I think, says it all. This is not back to the future. <laughs> this is just the future. Uh, I think it looks gorgeous. This is actually a separate operation from the, the DeLorean company that we know that's sort of restoring the old DeLoreans. Uh, but hey, we'll lead off with this. If there's one thing we found about our Autoblog readers, it's that you guys love the DeLorean. What do you think of this new DeLorean, Zach? Honestly, I'm not entirely sure what I think of it yet. I mean, the the design is by Ital Design here, which is traditionally, you know, a very very good prestigious design maker. And you know, it it has the gullwing doors. That's very cool. Um, I'm just curious to see what they're they're really going to do to you know make this a unique and intriguing electric car prospect out there. Um, it's you know, it's neat that there's going to be something called DeLorean uh, available, um, you know, zero to 60 and, you know, right around three seconds or so. Uh, sounds like it's going to be a very high performance EV. Um, but uh, I'm just going to go ahead and reserve like massive excitement to actually see this thing on the road. Now, there are so many EV startups out there right now, I feel. And 
this is yet another one that has promised a lot of really, really great things. Um, and, you know, if, if they do come to production as this, uh, then maybe it, it will be really, really great. Um, but, you know, we, we've seen even with Rivian, who's been a very, very promising uh, brand new company, you know, they've, they've struggled a lot. Um, so, I'm just going to go ahead and temper my excitement for now. Looks neat. Looks looks uh, pretty, you know, good if if they can actually make it. Uh, but I'm I'm just going to go ahead and reserve that judgment for now. I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, in the looks department, it, it looks great. I mean, that was never a problem with the original one either, for that matter. Jujaro and its predecessors actually did both cars. So, I mean, I think it definitely is sort of the head-turning appeal. Um, to your point, Lucid, Rivian, a number of startup EV makers have struggled. You know, even ones that sort of appear to get out of the gates, you know, a little more smoothly than some of the other ones, they usually do stumble. You know, I mean, I'll call it almost like, you know, the Fisker stumble, you know, is a great example. You know, 10 years ago, they had a great looking car. And then they had all sorts of bad luck and, you know, away went Fisker 1.0. And now we're on the Fisker 2.0, which is a totally different company with what appears to be a little bit of a stronger business plan. Will the same fate await these guys? We'll see. Uh, uh, but yeah, I mean, we're going to see the car, we think, at uh, Pebble Beach, Monterey uh, Car Week, which is a great place to see a car. It's actually called the Alpha 5. So, DeLorean is more of almost like the brand um, mm -hmm. which, you know, I guess the old DMC 12 was the specific model, but you know, they're, they're aiming kind of high here. Uh, so we'll see. I watched a couple of, uh, of the documentaries involving DeLorean, uh, Same. this winter. They were pretty good, right? You know, the yeah. one with Alec Baldwin was good. The other one, the other one was pretty good. So, I mean, it's, there's definitely some heritage there. Yeah. You know, it, Having the name DeLorean, I don't know if it's if it's a curse, if it's you know great for SEO, if it's uh, you know just it, it, it certainly gets you like all of the attention, you know, versus something like the A Spark Owl um, or any number of other EV startups and whatnot out there, um, because this one is not really related at all to the John DeLorean that was before. Um, they have the IP, which is. Uh, probably uh, good for them getting their name out there because, hey, here we are talking about them. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's just uh, a sort of a wait and see thing with them, I think. <laughs> it's interesting too when you can resurrect a brand like, you know, Shinola watches. Abercrombie had a run of it back in the 90s and 2000s on the retail side. Um, I think Filson is another example in the retail side. I'm not sure if they actually went away or not, but I mean, we've seen some successes where you bring back a name, sort of bring back the history, even though there's no real connection. And then, you know, you kind of make the connection, which I think can work, you know, as long as there's some level of like familiarity, um, you know, you can almost make up the rest <laughs> for lack of a better way to put it. I remember I interviewed a, I forget who it was. It was an infinity designer. I think a few years ago. And I was asking them, hey, why are you guys doing all these kind of like retro roadster concepts and stuff like that from like the 30s? And they're like, well, you know, we weren't around back then, but, you know, why not kind of make up our own history? And I was like, hey, that's not a bad <laughs> idea. If you're going to be on the lawn at Pebble with Mercedes and Bugatti, Bugatti is another example of a brand that came back from the dead. You know, you yeah. kind of got to 
you know, elevate that. So one thing that that does intrigue me with them is that, you know, they're, they're claiming that they're going to do multiple different types of propulsion systems for cars. So this one's an EV, the whatever Alpha 5, but they're claiming that they're going to have one that is just a, an internal combustion V8. They're claiming they're going to do one that's hydrogen. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think that their chances of maybe putting one that has a V8 and it's on the road are a lot higher than than perhaps a, a fully electric one. Um, but it's just it's just a, a interesting that they're not going like a full EV brand like this. They're sort of dipping their toe into each and every possible scenario. I think that the hydrogen one is probably the least likely of all. Um, but yeah, good <laughs> luck with that one. It's it's interesting nonetheless. So. Yes, sounds good. Um, I mean, that's not the only thing that has come back seemingly from the dead this week. Uh, the Buick Wildcat EV concept uh, revealed June 1st, a uh, nice way to kick off the month, drop dead gorgeous looking concept. Unlike some of these other brands, Buick has been around for 110 plus years and can you know really trade on its history. This is essentially... Here's how I would break it down. The Wildcat is like the halo, the attention getter to launch their like real like foray into electric vehicles in earnest. It's to get us to click on it, to get us to write about it, to get random person on the street to say, hey, that's a Buick. We'll go there, right? Um, it was trending on Google Trends yesterday, so they did something right. But the real play is they're going to have a lineup of Electras sort of to signify what the, the electric versions of the Buicks are, which will be most of them eventually. So uh, I'm impressed. I think, you know, it makes a lot of sense for Buick to sort of really pick up some of General Motors' expertise in the segment. Uh, GM has done quite a few things right in recent years. Uh, one of the things we always tend to look at is chassis engineering, how well their cars are tuned. Um, Large trucks, SUVs are another, but I really think electric vehicles are like the thing that they're going to really be able to hang their hat on with this Altium technology. And I mean, this could really be something for Buick. I think if they could get it right, make these cars feel special, I think design could be a huge part of it for Buick. Uh, I think they could get some momentum here. So, uh, and then we did see just today a concept, it was actually an electric concept, specifically wearing the badge, was revealed uh, for like the China market, which could, you know, create some buzz, you know, for Buick's global portfolio. And Buick is, of course, very strong in China. So um, I, I think this is a good first step for them. I really do. Hey, it's I, I love it when when Buick goes all out on on a design of a like a really really cool car. Um, I know that uh, our news editor Joel Stocksdale wrote, wrote right off the top for this story mentioned the Buick Avista. The Avista, um, because I mean that that is one concept that has really stuck with me. I I remember seeing that at at the Detroit Auto Show, uh, probably like 2017, 2018, um, and that that thing was gorgeous. It was Chevy Camaro based, but with a beautiful. Buick made uh, coupe body over it, and I was like, "Wow, Buick needs to make this. This is this is the coolest thing that has come from Buick in decades." 
and then, of course, nothing ended up happening, uh, which was pretty disappointing because nobody really expected all that uh, all that much to happen from uh, from Buick as as the brand they were then. And here we are again in 2022. Buick has made like one of the prettiest electric coupe concepts out there. You know, I'd sort of put it on the same stage as say like the uh, Genesis X or the Genesis Speedium concepts. Uh, just utterly gorgeous electric coupes uh, that are so so intricately designed and uh, yeah. But like you were saying off the top, uh, the chances of this being made are probably around zero. I know I was chatting with Joel. He said that he had actually asked Buick, like, hey, you guys going to make something that looks like this? They told him uh, they didn't say no. They also didn't say yes, uh, which is, you know, for the, the, the chances of, of something of this, this crazy caliber of, of a car actually making it to production for Buick is, I'd say, low right now. Um, but if uh, our little treat will be perhaps some design elements of this making it onto actual Buick production cars, which like you mentioned, the Buick Electra X that we saw today out of China, uh, that's probably more or less uh, the kind of vehicle that will end up having wildcat-like looks to it. You know, they'll take the taillights, they'll take the grill, they'll take the mirrors, they'll take some of the interior uh, bits. So, Probably going to see wildcat-like looking things on SUVs one day and probably electric too. So, beautiful thing to look at now. Uh, I just don't know that uh, it'll translate to what we all want it to translate to one day. <laughs> the Avista was one of Ed Welburn's final designs at uh, General Motors before he, he retired. Um, Buick also had the Avenir concept was actually, I believe, right around that same time too, before, I think actually, maybe right after. And then they did end up using the Avenir as like a trim level on across their lineup, which I think was a good move. Um, I do think if there ever is a shift back to cars, Buick could be a brand that could capitalize on that. Because I don't think you ever really associate Buick with SUVs. They have a lot of crossovers. They have sort of a sibling stable mate, GMC. There's never going to be, I think, a time where we're like Buick, crossovers, SUVs, that's their identity. I think they do it because they have to, and they're actually pretty good at a number of their, their offerings. Um, but I do think, you know, having good concepts, having stylish vehicles, bringing back actual names for cars, good move. Again, a lot of yeah. this is, you know, more like, theoretical almost at this point, but I mean, I think it could work. The Electra name is genius and probably the most obvious thing to bring back ever. Like what's, they literally have like the best name in the history of names yeah. for electric cars to be. It's to perfect. Have a, yeah. To have an electric brand. And I, and I hope that they use it like Hyundai is planning on using Ionic. Mm -hmm. uh, just, you know, have an Electra three, an Electra four, maybe like an Electra 289 or something weird like that. I don't know. <laughs> it is absolutely perfect. I cannot think of a better name for an electric electric car, short of calling it the electric, which wouldn't yeah. even, you know what I mean? Like it's, and yeah. there is some brand recognition. I think enough people will think Electra car, you know, like there's, even though they haven't used it since I want to say 1990, 
Um, and it was a variety of things, usually a large sedan for the better course of 30 years. Um, but I mean, it's absolutely perfect. It's even better, I think, than Ionic or Lightning because those are like the things that go into making electricity. This is literally saved for a couple of work of a couple of letters. It's electric. So uh, pretty excited. I, I think, hey, throw the wildcat on something too. There's that's just That'd a good cool. name, even though they haven't used it in 50 years. Uh, and most people who remember it are probably no longer with us, but hey, it's a good name. Yeah. And what, one last thing I'll point out in that uh, Electra X SUV concept from China is they actually mentioned the GS in there as well, uh, sort of indicating that there would be GS performance electric cars one day. So that's that's something that I don't know that I, 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 I've seen before, but perhaps we'll have an Electra, maybe like an Electra 3 GS. Sounds sounds interesting to me because the, the, the last, and obviously Buick has has a long history of GS things, but even even their last GS products here uh, with the, um, God, what was it? The Sportback that they had? The Regal. Um, the Regal Sportback. That was, that was a fun little thing. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it'd be, be really cool if they bring back the GS name for some electric sporty cars. Not necessarily sports cars, but maybe like a sedan that is, uh, you know, like an SS version, but yeah. it'll be a GS. They used GS for a lot of years. Sometimes they called it specifically a Grand Sport. Sometimes they didn't. It was more just like the GS badging. Either way, I think it would work. Um, Buick has a lot of great names. Uh, and I think, you know, like Lincoln, you're seeing brands that have heritage, they're not shying away from it anymore. They're trying to embrace it and know that it sure seems like every car is named the AL4 or the 5, you know, X3. And like nobody knows what that is. Like Toyota's hybrid, the BZ4X, is almost <laughs> comical. Like, but it's also like, I mean, that's what people think of, you know? I mean, so, um, yeah. I mean, the only brands that I think really get that right are Mercedes and BMW with E-Class and like 3 Series and things like that, where people know what the numbers and letters mean. Everybody else, it's just confusing at times. So, uh, good for Buick. Good for Buick. Speaking of Mercedes, we have the one. It's finally here. It's a race car. It's over a thousand horsepowers. Over a thousand horsepower. I don't believe it will be legal to drive in the United States. Um, <laughs> it's basically like an F1 car that kind of looks like an endurance racer, has the most spectacular wheels I've ever seen in pictures. Uh, this is kind of a cool thing. Yeah, it's kind of a, a crazy thing that, you know, it, it is actually here existing. It's going to be produced. Uh, I know that it's it's coming to us probably like three or four years after Mercedes actually promised that it would arrive. Um, but it turns out that uh, putting an actual Formula One engine, that 1.6 liter turbocharged V6, into a production car, making it emissions compliant uh, and actually drivable on, on the roads uh, is difficult. <laughs> who, who would have ever thought that? Um, but thankfully, it is it is finally here, and now it is honestly probably like one of the gonna go down as one of the coolest projects ever ever taken on. Frankly, by any sort of a manufacturer, nobody has 
literally removed uh, an engine from a Formula One car and put it into a production car and said, yeah, you can buy this thing and drive it on public roads. Uh, but here it is. Uh, so, just for that reason alone, yeah, it's it's a nutty technological masterpiece uh, that is probably something that we may never see again as because well everybody's seen how everybody has seen how difficult the project is uh and uh mercedes is probably one of the most sensical people to take that on just because they've had so much success with this particular era of f1 to go ahead and celebrate that in a, in a production car is way way cool this reminds me a little bit of the jaguar xj220 from the mid 90s as yeah. far as just Super aggressive, crazy, you know, super limited run. Um, just a really aggressive play. Um, yeah, this looks awesome. I hope someday I'll be on a press trip, maybe like in the south of France or the south of Germany. They're like, hey, we have the one here. You can drive it. You're going to get 10 minutes in it <laughs> and you got to sign everything. Don't break it. But I would love to drive this thing just once. Um, say I know, I know. It, it, you know the, the the actual driving experience. I, I I really have no idea what to expect. You know the the, the Zoda sixty two time is you know it's fast, but it's nothing crazy at, at just two point nine seconds. Um, That's a crazy sentence. Yeah, I, I, I know, right? I mean, the, the the fact is, like, there are so many supercars that are significantly quicker than that. Like, you can go out and buy a nine eleven Turbo S for like two hundred fifty grand. That'll do it, and I think like two three. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or you can buy this two point seven five million dollar creation from Mercedes AMG. That's six six tenths of a second slower. Um, you know, it's it it's sort of heavy because it's it's a plug in hybrid, thirty seven hundred pounds. Um, and I, I'm just really curious to see what kind of lap times it can actually put down. Um, cause maybe, maybe that's where all of, all of the performance is in, you know, it's obviously F1 derived, perhaps, uh, Mercedes hasn't cared all that much about the zero to 60 times. And they're just all about getting that peak lap time. Maybe they'll do a, a Nürburgring try. Uh, if it is the fastest around the Nürburgring or if it's close to the fastest, maybe they'll let us know. If it's not, uh, then just mark it down as one of the craziest, wildest projects uh, that is unbelievably cool out there. Sounds good. Uh, something a little bit more realistic and mainstream. Volkswagen announced uh, a couple of weeks ago that they're going to bring back the Scout. Uh, this is kind of a, this is an electric version of their iconic off-roader. Um, we thought it looked cool, but we were also kind of skeptical. Uh, Joel and I, news editor Joel Stocksdale and I on the podcast, sort of suggested this might be the first sort of rough and tough off-roader that maybe isn't an overwhelming success, like we've seen with the Broncos' return, of course, the Wranglers' endurance, and just, again, the Forerunners' endurance, too, and the G-Class's, you know, immortality. Our thought was maybe they're like, it's not that there's not room for it, but maybe this one just doesn't quite have the awareness. You got to be pretty old to remember like the International Harvester Scout. And in its own right, people generally would see the silhouette and think it was a Bronco or maybe a Jeep. I don't want to be pessimistic because in my mind, all cars are cool. Things with a retro theme, rough and tough off-roader that's electric. Hey, sign me up for that. That sounds pretty good, actually. But this is a story that clicked pretty well for us this week. There was a lot of interest. 
dealers are basically like, what are you guys doing? Wait a minute. Hang on. Let, <laughs> let's hit pause here. So to me, this is just sort of like the first kind of like, you know, like signpost. It's tougher to do these things than you might think, especially when you're really in this case, even for Volkswagen, doing it from the ground up. So we could see some heartburn here, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I understand, you know, why why the dealers might be a little upset is because it kind of looks like Volkswagen wants to do direct to consumer sales and just kind of cut the dealers out, um, which is a pretty common practice now that we've seen Tesla do it and we see Polestar try to do that and manufacturers try and do a lot more online these days. Um, so I could see that Volkswagen dealers could be a little cheesed that, you know, they've asked for like a rough and tough off-road or pickup truck, something like that for a while. And now Volkswagen is kind of doing that with the Scout brand, but hey, just kidding. Actually, you dealers are not going to be part of this at all. Um, but at the same time, I think that uh, by and large, a lot of people have very little sympathy for for dealers these days with a lot of the markups <laughs> that we've been seeing on on a lot of cars. I'm sure that folks out there that have been looking at GTIs and Golf R's have been faced with the same things as a lot of people looking for other performance cars. So, you know, you you can understand it from from the dealer side being like, well, we've asked for this, now you guys are building it and you're not giving it to us. But at the same time, I could also see Volkswagen being like, well, we don't want, like when we give this to you, we don't want you guys charging $10,000, $15,000 over MSRP for it, which at the current if this current market lasts for, I don't know, who knows how long would be the eventuality, I'm sure, with something like this because it's what we've seen with the Bronco uh, and it's it's certainly what we've seen with G-Wagons too um, as the uh, supply is just low. Um, so, yeah, tough tough going right now. I don't know if Volkswagen has any uh, – it's, it's just a tough place for them to be in right now, I think. <laughs> I uh... – I think it's interesting too, like your point, uh, there's not a lot of appetite for sympathy for dealers just in general over the years. I don't think yeah. people enjoy buying a car most of the time. Uh, I think people don't understand why the process has to be like a negotiation. They just want to buy their car. Like you, you know, there's some things in life you can negotiate for, but I don't think people necessarily want their car to be one of them anymore. I know dealers will say, hey, if you come in and you can negotiate, you get yourself a better deal. Well, I think there's a lot of people that say to themselves, well, I don't want to go in and have a negotiation, which is code word for conflict or fight when they're buying something that's supposed to be fun. Um, not trying to give dealers a bad rap here because that's not how it is in every circumstance by any means, but that's how people feel. And if you could just say, hey, I could get my electric scout online for $36,000 and I could spec it out and be excited about it and that's the process people are going to like that you know that's how you like you know change consumer behavior jim farley of ford just said the other day that he's expecting a lot of their electric portfolio will be available online for like a one price model and i mean these guys aren't wrong this is how people shop if anything during the pandemic you can order literally anything online and it will arrive hours later People don't want to, you know, use their car buying, you know, purchasing and decision making in that way. So I think, you know, I think Volkswagen's onto something here. I think if you did 
And some other strategy, I think that you know we're kind of seeing articulated in coming to light almost through the dealer pushback is that this could be almost like a little more of an independent model, you know, versus being just like another car in the VW lineup, another SUV in the VW lineup. It's like no, this is more of like a brand that they want to launch. And uh, I mean, I, I think v- Volkswagen is on the right path here. We'll see if they can, you know, sort of fill in the blanks and make it work. But um, yeah, I mean, I think from a product perspective, they probably will get it right. I'm not super concerned about that. But getting a brand up and running in the US is always tricky. Yeah, honestly, I I, I kind of see it as a, a little bit the same as like Volvo and Polestar. Yeah. So like, like you know, I obviously Polestar is very much entrenched with Volvo, but you don't go buy a Polestar at a Volvo dealer. You order one online. Mm-hmm. Or you go to one of the Polestar spaces and order one there. And Volvo really doesn't have much to do with it. Yeah. The, the, their entire dealer network is just separate. Um, and I, I could see that Volvo dealers might not be as as mad about that because, well, there are also Volvo electric cars coming that are very similar to the Polestars um, and also quite desirable. Volkswagen dealers, on the other hand, well, they're just flat out not a not going to get these cars and they're not going to get equivalents that are anything like them probably. <laughs> yeah. And Volkswagen dealers are a little probably closer to like traditional domestics like, you know, Ford, General Motors and Toyota and Honda as far as being like very mainstream. It's a car dealer. I think a Volvo mm-hmm. dealership, even though they're often just like a sign in like, you know, among different sort of premium brands, there's a little more, I think, like you know, similar feel between Polestar and say Volvo than you might see between a Scout in Volkswagen. But um, yeah, I mean, we're, we're veering into automotive news territory with all the dealer talk. <laughs> Indeed we are. <laughs> you just drove the Ford Maverick. Um, I've driven it multiple times. It's been one of my, I'd say, bigger surprises of the last year or so as far as a vehicle I've enjoyed. I'll toss it over to you, but this is a thought that just came to me when I was driving uh, let's see, what was I driving? <laughs> I was driving driving the Kia EV6, but I saw somebody in a Ranger cut in front of me, and it was a big truck. And I like the Ranger; it's not at all the best in segment at this point anymore, if it ever was. But it's a fun, jouncy, bouncy, almost old school experience. It comes from Ford's Australian division. Uh, it's very much like Tacoma, Colorado rough and tough truck. And it's also quite big. It's smaller than an F-150, but just in truck world, it's a pretty large truck. You know, it's as big as the F-150 was a few generations ago. When it launched, I think some of us thought, hey, this might be something a little different than the F-150. Ford sure tried to pitch it that way wisely at the time, but it really wasn't. It's like a smaller truck that's a truck. The Maverick, you can make it a truck, but I think it's also a little more clever than the Ranger ever attempted to be. It offers you something different. You can drive it in more circumstances. It's far more parkable and garageable. These are the things that people said the Ranger would be, but let's be real. You got to have a pretty big garage to get a Ranger in it. You know, the Maverick, you know, this is really the Ford Focus replacement. It's a C segment vehicle and it's a lot of fun. My take, you know, what do you think? I completely agree. Honestly, I had way more fun driving this thing around than I thought I was going to have. The, the the one that I had was the EcoBoost, so the two liter turbo, uh, and 
this thing positively scoots. Uh, I was not expecting it to be as, as quick as it was. Um, but that combined with it being so small and uh, just generally agile for, for a pickup, it's like it, when you're driving something that has a big bed behind you, you don't expect it to be, uh, you know, agile and fun to toss around. But this thing, it, it genuinely was. Um, and I, I, I could see myself driving this, you know, on, on a daily basis and, you know, being genuinely entertained by the driving experience. It's not like a big full size truck or even a Ranger that can be a bit of a chore to drive around. Uh, this thing fits in lanes. Uh, like you said, it fits wherever you want to park it, uh, has, has a relatively tight turning circle. And, uh, the, the other thing is it's, it's cheap. Uh, the one that I drove was pretty nicely equipped. Uh, it was under $30,000. It was, it was 29 grand and it had this really, really sweet interior that was sort of like a, a tricolor thing. It was blue, uh, a whitish gray with orange accents and had some really neat fabric going on in the seats, some interesting design across the dash, uh, just a whole lot of different material shapes and just a very, very functional, but also interesting looking interior. Uh, so I was genuinely like really impressed by what they were able to do at this price point. Um, even, even with the two liter turbo, I, I, I think that the, the, the XLT trim is, it, it is a fantastic way to go. Um, and just the general usability of, of the truck. So I, I went and I, I did some lawn work. So I had to go pick up some, uh, lawn bags, some, uh, planting some seeds and whatnot. And, uh, you know, what, when I went to grab it out of the truck, when I got home, I didn't even have to drop the gate. I just stand right there. I reach in, uh, cause the bed is literally right there. You just grab whatever you need out of it. Like it's, it's just the most usable, easy, easy to deal with thing out there. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I honestly, it, it, it makes me think like, why has somebody not done this before now? Like this, this, this truck is so smart and it, it, it'll work for so many people's lifestyles. I feel that uh, it, it's like Ford really, really found something smart here. Um, and I, it, and it really makes me want to try out the hybrid um, because I, I know with, with the EcoBoost, you know, I, I wasn't getting the greatest fuel economy. I, mean, I was getting about like 22, 23. Uh, and that was probably mostly because I was having too much fun hitting the gas pedal. Um, but Man, I've I've seen so many other others quote you know forty plus MPG with a hybrid, and it's it's still I, I'm sure it's the same fun to toss left and right, uh, super lightweight truck um, as as the EcoBoost was. Uh, so yeah, this this thing really really impressed me more than I I, I thought it was going to. Yeah, I think. Um... I think it's getting some daylight between the between the, the Maverick is between itself and the Santa Cruz from Hyundai. They both mm -hmm. launched about the same time. Naturally, we compared them to each other. Uh, the Maverick has a hybrid. The Santa Cruz, we're pretty sure, is going to get one. Um, the Santa Cruz became more of a style play. The Maverick is sort of pitching itself as basically more of a Ford truck, which it should do, right? That makes the most sense. Um, I mean, sales have not been super close. Mavericks have just been really good, and the Santa yeah. Cruzes have just been very solid. Um, but I mean, you know, I drove one. I remember it was Halloween, and we were able to use some of those uh, external plugs to put in like some lights, and we did like a little tailgate in our 
driveway actually and uh just sat there and passed out candy and um so i mean it's just, it's a clever truck the bed is clever it's you know it still looks pretty good too it stands out it's uh it has that kind of blocky look to it um I was, I had one, I was using it for preschool drop off uh, last fall and some guy came up to me and was like, and granted, you know, we could drive some cool cars. The Ford truck didn't seem like the thing that would stand out. Guy was all over it, wanted to look in the bed, look at the different compartments. And I'm like, sure, man, check it out. And he's like, I, I ordered one. I wasn't sure if I wanted one, but now I see one. And I couldn't believe how much attention I would get whenever I drove the Maverick uh, the few times I did drive it last fall. Um, the, I drove it a few times. I actually got a fair amount of seat time. Uh, and then he went ahead and bought one and I saw him the other day and it was, seems to be loving it. So I do think they came in aggressively with the price, price points here. And I think it's definitely, a it makes a lot of sense. It's the strategy that didn't make sense like six, seven years ago when they're like, we're going to kill the focus. We're going to kill the fusion. We're bringing in this small truck thing that we're not going to tell you about, but we're going to do it. We already have the Ranger coming and nobody really understands what you're going to do. We're going to announce it on an earnings call. Like it just didn't make sense. But now that you see the actual product, you can drive it. Uh, I really think it's, it's brilliant. It's a, uh, it's a really one of the more well thought out executions that I think Ford has done in recent years. And they've had a number of hits. Yeah. I mean, I, I genuinely understand why everybody wants one of these, why it's so hard to get one, uh, why Ford dealers want to charge people a lot more than uh, MSRP for it. Um, I, unfortunately, that it, it, it does really kill the proposition to me, paying more than MSRP for this thing because it feels like that's kind of the point of the truck is it's meant to be, you know, super cheap. Um, and for for the actual price, I think that it is a hell of a truck uh, if, if you can find one. Uh, just get whichever one suits your needs. The the, the EcoBoost is is quick. Uh, sounds sounds decent. You even get a little bit of turbo noise, and uh, man, but but if you're just using it as as a as a commuter, I feel like the hybrid is just un, unbeatable. I mean, even versus hybrid cars, uh, the miles per gallon is nuts for the utility you get for it. Very, uh, very solid vehicle. And um, yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those things where like you look at some of the different segments Ford has tried to get into in recent years. It kind of makes me think, hey, Jim Farley was tweeting about the Puma maybe a year or so ago. Mm-hmm. See what they could do with that. That might be a fun little thing to bring to the U.S. Give us the Puma. Yeah. Give us the Puma ST. I, yes. I actually kind of want uh, one thing I was thinking of after driving this Maverick ST. I was like, Give us a Maverick ST. Like, mm, give us a sport truck. Like, a, a, a small thing, you know, obviously escape Bronco Sport based. I think they could genuinely put together something that's that's kind of fun to drive. And they have the heritage in like the SVT Lightnings. Uh, I think it would be really, really cool. Was there like a massive market for such a thing? Probably not. But I think it's it's definitely a possibility that, that Ford could go after uh, just because it is is genuinely cool and interesting to, to drive even as is. So let's talk about the Chrysler Pacifica Hybrid. This is the Pinnacle Edition. I am just wrapping up a week with it. Uh, it was very nice, very uh, basically the top of the food chain for the Chrysler uh, Pacifica lineup. 
man, the, the cars we're talking about in this podcast, like DeLorean, Wildcat, Electra, Pacifica, like <laughs> it's just Maverick. It's, it's crazy, man. It's, no <laughs> but I like it. It's, it's a great thing. Um, so, I mean, I enjoyed my week with it, put a lot of miles on it. Um, it's nice. To, one thing I like about the hybrid is even when you've run the charge down, you still get a little bit of that. Like you can regen some electricity, but through your braking, you can still get a little bit of a takeoff, if you will. Like you're you're surprisingly quick from stoplights in your minivan, which I think is kind of a neat thing. People don't expect that. You get a little bit of an extra. It's almost like Curs in Formula One. I'll go there from the <laughs> minivan to Curs. Um, oh god! But yeah, it's. It's cool, man. Have you have you driven the Pacifica lately? Uh man, the, the the last one I drove was actually pre-refresh. Um, oh jeez. Okay. But the uh, the the question that I'm interested in is, did you utilize those pillows? I did. Those 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 pillows are so cool. I, I I remember seeing them at the Chicago Auto Show when they revealed this mid-cycle refresh for the Pacifica with with that pinnacle trim, and I was like, pillows in a Pacifica hybrid. Wow, this is like Maybach levels of luxury back here in the back seat when you go and toss a, a quilted pillow back there. <laughs> Next time they'll have to put the silver flutes in there, I guess, right? For no, Maybach? I mean, obviously Chrysler, uh, the lap of luxury, they should have silver plated flutes for them as well, right? But it's, uh <laughs> Yeah, I mean, why not? One it's interesting you bring that up though. Like, I mean, just because it's expensive does not necessarily mean it's that much better. Like once you cross a certain threshold, anywhere from over $80,000, maybe a hundred, it's like, okay, I've driven some amazing cars that are in the $200,000 range and above. You get to a certain point where you're like, yeah, this is opulent. But also like, do you really notice if this rare sourced wood is that much better than you know, the wood in like an $80,000, say Mercedes or something. So it, to me, that underscores just Chrysler could be luxurious. They could be premium. They want to put leather pillows in their car. Leather pillows aren't that expensive. You could get them from like a leather goods store for maybe a couple hundred bucks and it <laughs> creates the aura of luxury. So yeah, I did use them. My kid used them. My dog put her head on them. I mean, they're pillows. <laughs> that's what they're there for. It's a beautiful interior. It's kind of like a burnt orange color. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, I've I've seen that one before. Yeah, so solid vehicle, and it's again I uh, this always scores well in our like minivan ratings. I know at times we've given the Sienna uh, hybrid a little bit of a better edge. Uh, I think that's very subjective. You know, you uh, might say that the all electric situation is better for you. Um, the downside that we have noted is once you exhaust the uh, electrical range, which is about 30 miles. You're just driving around with a Chrysler Pentastar V6, a bunch of batteries. So that's not so good for fuel economy. But, you know, it depends on your lifestyle. If you want a plug-in hybrid, I mean, this is this is still one of the relatively few plug-in hybrids. There's more and more every day, but it's a little bit surreal that, you know, a Pacifica hybrid minivan is one of the better plug-in choices you could get on the market. And it's yeah. hugely functional. Doors can open six different ways or more. Ton of room in the back. Um, super comfortable for a family, that's for sure. No, I, I really, really love the the hybrid. I know we had that, that long-termer now. It's probably been like four years since we yeah. had that. But um, no, we, we, we had that one. And it was 
you know, I would, I would go out with friends with it and whatnot. And I'd be like talking this minivan up and they'd be like, Hey, bro, like, <laughs> why are you talking this minivan up so much? It's a minivan. I'm like, no, it's like genuinely cool. Like, this is like one of the only plug-in hybrids that were out there at the time. And uh, it was actually a really, really good plug-in hybrid. And it still is today. Like, 30 miles of electric range is really fantastic. And there still isn't another plug-in hybrid minivan available today. And there have been new ones. Obviously, Toyota went just pure hybrid, no plug-in capability. The Kia Carnival, gas only. Uh, I highly doubt that Honda with, with whatever next Odyssey we get will be plug-in hybrid. That'll probably just be a standard hybrid. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a it's just a, a unique proposition that, uh, that has genuinely aged well, I think. Um, so, I'm, I, I'm glad to hear that you still like it because I have lots of fond memories of that, of that minivan. Yeah, it's interesting that we're even speaking of this as like an aged proposition because they were among the first of the market, you know, yeah. as far as getting the mini, minivan sector in general, but also electrifying it. And then they've, they've stayed there. So I think it's still, when I talk to a lot of people at a variety of ages and price points, they can enjoy the vehicle for its merits, its comfort, its premium feel, or they're just like, you know, once you like hit 30 and have kids and you just see how much easier this tool is for parenting, it's hard not to be like, I want this or another kind of minivan. And I mean, I think there's still tax credits out there for this thing. So yeah, uh, you can so. get a deal on it, you know? Yeah. It, it's honestly probably not much more expensive than than the gas version. Uh, if, if you're looking at just the plain V6 versus the hybrid, I'd go hybrid every day. Yeah. No, me too. Me too. All right. So let's, uh, let's transition over to uh, my conversation with former car and driver, editor-in-chief, Eddie Alterman. He has a new podcast called Car Show. Uh, basically, he kind of breaks down like certain vehicles that have had a, um, you know, a deep resonance on our culture and how we, you know, how we interact with them and drive things like the Jeep Wrangler, the BMW M5, things like that. And I talked to him just about what he's driving, you know, what it's like in the car business, the car magazine business. Let's have a listen. Joining us now is Eddie Alterman. He's the former editor-in-chief of Car and Driver for over a decade. I'm sure you've read his work over the years. He's now the host of a podcast aptly named Car Show. Uh, this is by Pushkin Industries with Malcolm Gladwell. Welcome, Eddie. Thanks, Greg. Great to see you. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for coming on the Autoblog podcast. It's always fun to talk cars. Um, your podcast has a number of cars that are very near and dear to my heart, things that I really... Uh, you know, growing up was interested in. I've been able to drive some of them throughout my career. Um, and just it's it's really an interesting take on um, sort of thematically on some of the things that perhaps people haven't necessarily thought about in a little bit. Yeah, thank you, Greg. And, um, you know, the show is uh, sort of imaginatively imaginatively titled car show we got to that after many working titles the first working title was cars that change the world or 50 cars that change the world and then we went through one called cars are interesting cars are interesting and it just uh it all of those seemed like a little too clumsy or too cute car show was actually out there i can't believe that so good for seo and all that yeah but 
The idea really is, as you said, is to look at cars from a slightly different angle and not to think about them as just in terms of the their mechanical attributes, but the impact that they've had on our lives and our culture and um, why we gravitate towards some of them, why some of them become really important as sort of cultural touchstones. And, you know, throughout my career, I've been reviewing cars. I've been reviewing cars since I was 19 years old. <laughs> and, you know, it's all I've ever wanted to do. But there is another aspect that we don't talk about so much, but it's really sort of, a, you know, a very, very important thing about why we're so bonded to certain machines. And that is, you know, what they say about us. Like we always say at Car and Driver, if cars weren't emotional purchases, people would be driving beige minivans, you know. I mean, I might drive a beige minivan out of, you know, pure choice because I think minivans are great. But, you know, they really are important to how we kind of confront the world and what we say to the world with our choices. And that's not just, I mean, Prius is a great example of that. EVs are a great example of that kind of virtue signaling for a lot of people. But, you know, we talk about this in the Jeep episode, we go fairly deep into the first episode, which is on the Jeep Wrangler. You know, why are, are people so obsessed with these things? You know, Jeep has been through, I think, nine corporate custodians, and it emerges stronger every time, you know, it just kind of like eats its host. <laughs> and Jeep survives where its parent corporations sometimes don't. And what is it about the Jeep that is so lasting and so enduring? And what is this idea that makes it really so valuable to people. I mean, it's not because it's so refined. In fact, I might argue the opposite. It's that it's so old school and feels so old. And so it's so vivid and experience. And that experience really ties us back. And this is the point I make in the podcast. That experience ties us back to World War II. And, uh, in a, and Jeep, you know, reinforces that with everything in the vehicle itself. You know, those little army jeeps crawling up the the uh, the graphic of the army jeep crawling up the the windshield. And when you start it, it says since 1941. And you know, the stencils and stars and the olive drab greens. Those are all real, very very serious reminders of of you know what that vehicle meant. It's interesting too when you look at the different like subject matters you've chosen the m5 so far the 928 the uh and of course the wrangler what i found interesting is there's sort of a backstory that the average person may or may not know about like i didn't realize the 928 it was so like really the thing that was supposed to take over the 911 i mean i kind of knew that but then you find out that there were all these like little cuts along the way where it's like no, no, really, the plan was to get rid of the 9-11 at like 1981 or something, right? Yeah, yeah. So like talk about alternate histories, right? I know, it's crazy. And, and you know, it's funny because Porsche is sort of seen as a one-car company or seen for a very, very long time as a one-car company. But its core, you know, kind of value is experimentation. I mean, they are racers and they try stuff all the time. And you've, you've been to uh, the, the museum in Sufenhausen, right? Greg? Yeah. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. Right. Like four door 928s, four door 911s, all those great 917 and 956 and 962 race cars, the 953s, the 959 Paris Dakar, you know, they're just 
working every single angle with not a huge amount of resources. And the 928 was their attempt to really branch out, to carry some of the essence of the, the 911, you know, the visual essence of the 911 into the modern era and compete really, you know, um, compete more, um, more closely with Mercedes and BMW. And after all that time, you know, and all that work, and really the 928 was the first Porsche not somehow based on a VW. It was totally all new, you know, all new water-cooled V8 up front, new rear axle, new everything. Um, it turned out that people wanted the old stuff, <laughs> you know, and people were sort of, you know, they felt a little bit betrayed that here was a car that was coming to sort of stop the uh, the progress of the 911. And there were good reasons for that. You know, the 911 was very retrograde and it was up against a ton of regulations that nobody thought it could meet. But it's funny about regulations in the car business, you know, that the people at these companies are so smart. They always figure out a way to, to meet them. It's true. It's true. You talk about the M5 being one of the, like the last best sports sedan. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, you might argue that the, the Blackwing, the CT5 Blackwing destroys my argument. <laughs> I might argue that. That's a brilliant car. Better than I thought it would be. Car. But that car is a great, like, um, fusion of digital and analog. Whereas the E39 M5, that is the subject of the, the episode, the main subject of the episode, it's like, it was a car that was sort of unlikely as, a, as one of the great sports sedans, right? It's, it's based on a, a bigger mid-sized car, not the, not the M3 or, you know, um, not the sort of E36, E46. And a lot of people think that E46 is better. Okay. Um, but M5 has this iconic aspect to it because it was really a four-door 911 when it came out. You know, it had almost 400 horsepower. It was like, it blew our minds at the time, you know, like in the late, it was 1999 when it came out. And that car was not, Unlike the other M cars, the other M5s, it, it came down the regular line. It was not like a special build like the E34 was and the previous, I think, E28. And there was something magical about it. And that magic was just in the basic analog tuning of the thing. The thing just was honed and honed and honed. And, you know, it had recirculating ball steering, but, um, the suspension geometry was so great. The thing just felt so good. Now, some people say that the rack and rack in the, the other five series was a better steering system. I sort of disagree. I think, you know, that the, the steering in, in the M5, the 39 M5 is just magic. And a lot of that is suspension geometry, but it is a car that is, has sort of stood the test of time as, as like, here's what it looks like when they really get it right, when they take, you know, nothing special, you know, brakes weren't special, suspension wasn't so special. It was just the tuning of the thing. And it was just the honing of the thing. And the fact that they made it work 
so well. It was a real triumph of vehicle integration. And then you drive the new M5 and it's a digital car, you know, suspension is, uh, you know, adaptive steerings, EPS, you know, um, shifter is adaptive. Everything about it is, is really sort of there to make you better uh, rather than, you know, you sort of finding your way through the car itself. And the new M5 is remarkable. I mean, it's insanely good. You know, it's a great, great car, but it's not more fun than the old 911. It doesn't have that kind of soul. I, mean, I said 911, I mean M5. It doesn't have that soul of the E39. It feels robotic. Yeah, so it's interesting. We just mentioned the Black Wings, the Cadillacs. What are you driving these days that are really that's really resonating with you? Um, well, certainly those Black Wings are mine. Yeah, yeah, they really like uh, really show again the power of tuning and tuning and mm -hmm. tuning. And um, you know, that car does have adaptive suspension and it rides great. And um, I think they're titanium rods in the Mm -hmm. in the manual gearbox and it's just you know it's incredible and it's so well done and if there's one car that's maybe the the modern equivalent of that e39 m5 it's that uh and and uh so that car has totally blown me blown me away but you know what else has really kind of done my head in as mark gillies used to say yeah. is, um, <laughs> is the genesis gv70 <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. I drove that last summer. It was really very nice. Hi, you know, what's amazing to me is, okay, you've got this gigantic compact premium category, luxury compact SUV category from everything from the super luxury, you know, very light feeling, light on its toes, great riding, non-sporty Lexus RX, all the way to the Porsche Macan, right? The GV like splits it right down the middle. Yeah. It's super silky. It's got great powertrains. When you bend it into a corner, it's all there. It's really good. I mean, I think the ride needs a little bit of work, or the structure might need a little bit of work, which would impact the ride positively. But it's so good. And look, this is their second SUV, you know, yeah. right out of the gate. And it's amazing. It's amazing how quickly they iterate. It's amazing how good their vehicle integration is. And really, you know, the one I was driving was $62,000 with all the stuff on it. And it's like $150,000 interior in that car. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you completely. Genesis vehicles have been really impressive. I mean, they just, the design, I think they t took a lot of risks with that. You know, you could argue they're almost like, I could see some Bentley cues in there if you really want to. And then you drive them and they're they're really set up well. The engines are really nice and it's, I mean, to your point, when you put it in the context of like, this is like the first time they're doing cars in these segments, it's in some ways, it's really quite astounding. Yeah, it is. It really is. And I also really love the Ford Maverick. Yeah. I thought that that was such a smart take. I, I think Ford is doing some really, really smart stuff too, just in terms of how they're, they're going from a branded house, you know, to a house of brands. And so you have these sub-brands like Mustang, that they're expanding bronco that's becoming a sub-brand f-150 with lightning you know all these new facets on the brands 
really, really interesting. And Maverick to me, you know, I drove the, the entry level one, the hybrid, and it was so good. And it felt so sort of simple and purposeful. It felt like kind of your first car should feel, you know, and that's what a kid's first car is now. With, you know, if you've got, if your parents have the money, they're buying you, you know, an SUV or a pickup. And that one is just so honest and straightforward, even though it's a hybrid and all that, it's uh, and sort of somewhat complicated. It drives great. It, f- it feels really stout. Um, no, I mean, it's a really interesting time in the business. You know, everybody's doing really cool stuff. I think General Motors has never done better stuff. Their performance cars are just outrageously great. I mean, I can't wait to drive Z06. Uh, like we said, black wings are just other level, just astonishing. And, you know, you have competition from all, all corners and, and, you know, the established car makers like Mercedes and Audi and the, the traditional luxury brands, they're not stopping. Porsche is not stopping. So it's just wild. And, you know, we're in this era of extreme change and volatility and convulsion. We've never seen anything like this in our lifetimes, you know, transition to different prime mover technology from internal combustion to EV is starting, you know, we're at mile one of the marathon, but it's starting, um, you know, semi-autonomous features have infiltrated almost everything. And it's just a wild, wild time. And uh, it's a good time to be a journalist. There's a lot to write about, a lot to cover. It's it's certainly interesting. I, I got to ask, what's your read on Tesla when you talk about just all the changes that we're seeing? Um, I actually had fun a couple of weeks ago writing a story about Henrik Fisker dropping off of Twitter. Yeah. And I remember thinking it's in a way this is so inside baseball, but it, it clicked pretty well. But just, you know, Tesla has so much going on right now. Um, and then, of course, there's the whole Twitter thing going on. So, I mean... Right. How do you handicap that? Well, it's a great question. I don't know. I mean, Musk never, <laughs> never ceases to astound. And you count him out and you go, there's no way he can do this. And he does it. And you have to respect everything he's done. But it seems like he's sort of taken his eye off the ball with cars. And I always felt like his cars were sort of marketing for his energy systems, mm. you know. And he has the car, the cars pale next to the excellence of the supercharger network. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the cars are just not as good. You, you get into a Model 3, and then you get into, um, you know, an e-tron, let's say, and the, I mean, or get into a Polestar. I mean, it's just like the build quality isn't, you know, and everybody's been talking about this for sure. Um, but, you know, Tesla's a bit of a cult. You know, Tesla's a bit of a, you know, the, the passion that, that, owners have for it is astonishing and great and amazing. And it's like Apple and Musk has been able to bring a a level of excitement and interest to cars that really hadn't existed before. He's taken that sort of excitement around consumer electronics and applied it to the, to the vehicle. And people are just ridiculously passionate about these things. And I think that's, that's a great thing. Um, But it doesn't seem like, cars are where his heart is right now you know he's moved on maybe to twitter and you know trolling you know the political world (laughs) 
And, you know, he's an amazing, amazing guy. He just uses more of his brain than the rest of us. It's interesting. I was in New York recently, and whenever you're there, you can't help but just, you know, all the, like, the, the, the magnets of the early 20th, 20th century, the Rockefellers, the Vanderbilts, and, you know, the Chrysler building, too. I mean, it's it's just interesting to see how these sort of pioneering you know, people tried to leave their mark on the world in so many different ways. Uh, a lot of these guys like sort of transcended their industry. They just, they played in all these different markets. So I, I see a lot of parallels with Musk there, but sometimes you just, you wonder how it's all going to end up, you know? And what's, what's your take on it? Well, I think it's great to watch. It's great to cover. Um, I think the cars are reaching a point where I think he's got probably five more years until people are going to start to maybe like rebel and say, well, wait a minute, this Model 3 isn't quite as good as the Chevy Bolt or something that, you know, I could get from a mainstream automaker. 100%. So, I mean, we'll see. I think there could be a shelf life. The Bolt is really great. And, you know, and I think we're moving toward a, a place and he's probably moved furthest um, toward it is to a place where, you know, the cars have about 400 miles of range and can get to 80% from 20% in about 10 minutes. And I think that's going to sort of open it up, but you know, Musk didn't want to be the necessarily be the dominant um, EV maker. He wanted to commercialize it. Yeah. And he's done that, you know, it, it's, it's an amazing achievement and everybody's trying to catch up to him. So just wild. It's interesting that he is probably the single most famous automotive executive, you know, right now. I mean, how many for how many years was the head of General Motors sort of like, you know, the state's person for the industry or something or whatever Ford family member was in charge or even, you know, Akio Toyota has a lot of star power. But everybody knows who Elon Musk is. You know, I mean, I mean, I I mean, I don't know, like. I'm not saying that's a good thing, but and Royce and and Mary Barra and Akio Toyota, they they are big, big names. And yeah. I think that everybody in business knows them. But Musk is a cultural figure in it. Yeah, you're right. Musk is a cultural figure in sort of a bigger way. Now, we mentioned just how things are interesting to cover right now. Um, you know, you took over Car and Driver back in 09. Yeah. The media landscape was a much different place. I remember I was at Auto Week at the time, and we were still publishing a weekly magazine at that point, yeah. which I don't think they publish any magazines at this point. Um, so, I mean, I'm just curious as you look at like that decade, and then even like the, you know, the subsequent few years runoff kind of, you know, what's your take on the automotive like journalism landscape? You know, I mean, clearly that that ten year period was totally transformative in terms of media. I mean, it, in 2009, you know, you had the Lehman Brothers event, mm-hmm. everything had melted down, you know, the business had melted down, two of the three um, were taking government money, and it was just a crazy, crazy time. And laid on top of that was uh, media chaos, <laughs> and a transition from from print to digital. and. What was interesting at the time is we we sat back and we thought, you know, did television kill radio? No, it just forced it to adapt and to be sort of truer truer to itself. And, you know, at the early days of television, people were reading radio scripts on TV, 
And then TV sort of adapted to suit its medium and the content adapted to suit its medium. And that's sort of what happened in, um, in print and digital media. And I would argue that the print that has lasted and succeeded is the one that's doing really delivering value that is native to its, to its medium and true to its medium and not sort of just republishing digital stories in a print format, doing things you can't do anywhere else. And, you know, that became our core philosophy at Car and Driver and later Hearst Autos, which is adapt the content, tailor the content to the medium. So don't just shovel print stories into digital. Don't store, don't shovel digital stories into print and take that sort of view into new media like video, like podcast, what we're doing here and like, even like newsletters. So at Car and Driver, that was sort of like us saying, Hey, what does the digital environment want? You know, people used to use Car and Driver as a shopping tool when it was in print. They would pick it up off the newsstand, read a preview, read a road test, and then finally read a comparable and then say, okay, I'm going to buy a car now. And that would take like nine months. You had incredible time compression on the web. So we said, why don't we serve that in-market shopper with our expertise and make it the preeminent research site like print used to do for the in-market audience that was picking up on the, off the newsstand. And then what does what print become? Print becomes much more of an enthusiast expression of the brand. It's much more about the numbers. I mean, the car and driver thing is that numbers allow us to serve both audiences, right? Numbers allow us to serve the enthusiast and they allow us to, to serve the shopper. But in print, our thinking was nobody picks up a magazine now by accident. You have to be into the subject matter. So with, with print, we went more enthusiast, much more kind of, but the car and driver style enthusiasts, which was about numbers and a rational, logical approach to, to car performance and, you know, with a little smart ass edge to it. And you look at what, what, how we're trying to uh, evolve the road and track brand. And that brand is much more about the experiences. So we think of car and driver as the head, road and track as the heart, auto week as the pulse. So for Road and Track, it's really an experiential brand. And half of that is, you know, in real life rallies and uh, events and things where we're going out on the road and talking to our readers and bringing our readers along for the ride and doing cool stuff. Like we'll have, I think, four rallies this year. One's in Napa and Sonoma, one's in the Hudson Valley. We did one out of Austin and really bringing that brand to life and using our access to bring people like Graham Ray Hall and, you know, Wayne Carini to the, to these events. Um, the other part of the brand is, I don't know if you've seen the print execution. It's just like this amazing coffee table art book that really rewards people's passions. And, you know, the idea is if you're really into it, you're going to pay for it. And let's give the customer something that really is worth the money. And then digitally it's, it's, sort of the same experiential uh, smart take. So long way of answering uh, that question is, yes, media has changed a lot, but I think you can find your path through if you're true to what these media want. And if you really listen to your reader and your customer, and that's, that's the key thing in any, anything, know your audience. 
Sounds good. Sounds good. We can leave it there. Uh, Eddie, thanks for joining us. Uh, so you can get your get car show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, anywhere else you could get it. Anywhere you get your podcast, iHeartRadio. There you go. All right. Sounds good. We'll have a great rest of the summer. And uh, thanks for the time, Eddie. You too, Greg. I'll see you on Woodward. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, man. Thanks again for joining us, Eddie. Uh, definitely appreciate the time. Zach, any weekend plans for you? Weekend plans. I'm actually going to the Detroit Grand Prix on Belle Isle. That's right. This weekend with Honda. Yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll be there both uh, Saturday for the IMSA race and then Sunday for the uh, actual Indy Grand Prix. So I'm pretty hyped. This is the last uh, uh, Grand Prix on Belle Isle. Next year, they're going to downtown Detroit, which is exciting in its own way. Um, but, uh, I'm, I'm glad to be going to the last one, uh, on the Island. Sounds great. I don't know if I'm going to get down there or not. Uh, I was actually just talking to my wife about, we want to go out for dinner. Maybe it like slows. That's one of the good, mm, um, slows. <laughs> barbecue restaurants in Corktown. We'll see. I might get down to the race. I might not. I love the setup on Belle Isle. I remember going there like back in 08. I was at Auto Week at the time and just it's so cool. But I do think long term, just moving over to the streets of Detroit, that's going to be the right move. That's where they've run Formula One. It could be a demonstration to get an F1 race in Detroit, which I think would be awesome. Let's do that. Formula One, anybody who's listening and can make that happen. <laughs> ESPN folks, let's get that here. I think that would be great. But uh, it should be a good weekend in the city. Oh, absolutely. Looks like it's, it's perfect weather for racing. Uh, I cannot wait for it. You've been on the podcast a lot lately. We always have been talking about summer beers. Anything you're sipping this weekend? Oh, man. What have I – what did I get as of late? I got a uh, – I've been sipping on this Shandy, actually. Okay. Um, I've, I've been to Connor O'Neill's in Ann Arbor. Oh, I like that. Uh, yeah, like – three times in, in, in the past week, just because I've, I've been down there dog sitting and whatnot. There you go. Uh, so, some of my buddies are like, yeah, let's, let's, uh, let's, let's go to Connor O'Neill's. So, if you have uh, Harps Lager and lemonade on hand, go ahead okay. and do two-thirds Harps Lager, one-third lemonade. And uh, yeah, what a tasty drink. I love it. <laughs> I don't know if I could do that, man. That sounds a little bit... I like lemonade. I like beer. I don't like them together. Although uh, I do like shandy. some of those shandies. I don't shandies like to make so the good. shandies myself. That's just... <laughs> there's some things you can't do. Like, you know, I, I don't necessarily want to do brain surgery or any sort of medical treatment on myself. Uh, I don't mind making drinks, uh, but I don't know if I could get the the lemonade like equation part of this right i'm i'm told that this is the proper like irish british way to do it you know we, we get it at, at an irish pub and i don't know i haven't actually had a shandy in ireland before but supposedly this is this is the authentic way um and i i i certainly loved it but to your point i also love those pre-made shandies i buy those all the time. <laughs> yeah, those are pretty solid. I've been sipping gin and tonics. I think the weather gets a little warm to drink with a lot of ice, a little bit of lemon, pretty smooth. And I actually have been doing Heineken on the patio too. I think that's a good way to uh, uh, just that tall green glass. It's good. It's good at Christmas. It's good all year round. 
there's something just about like putting in the garden or getting like a bunch of yard work done that opening a beer on the patio and hey putting on the auto blog podcast all right Heck yeah <laughs> all right sounds good podcast at autoblog.com if you have questions mailbag spend my monies you gotta send us your spend my monies uh, we want to spend your money please send them to us Five stars if you enjoy the show. That's on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Thanks again to Eddie for joining us this week on the show. Be safe out there and we'll see you next week.